You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean Line Media presents the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Coach Kevin again from Safe Conversations with, with Kevin Waits. I'm honored and I'm privileged to have on a good friend of mine today, uh, Mr. Nassim. Welcome. Appreciate you. How you doing, Coach? Good, 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 good. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, your education, where you from, and where you are today? Ooh, that seems pretty easy. So born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Mom is from Trinidad and Tobago, the West Indies. My father's from Georgetown, South Carolina small town in between Charleston and Myrtle Beach along the coast. I um, grew up in New York. I migrated down to South Carolina where I finished high school. I actually began my college career in South Carolina, small town called Florence, South Carolina, um, school called Francis Marion University at the time. Then I migrated up to the Mid-Atlantic and I graduated from George Mason University. I um, lived in the Mid-Atlantic several years, about 14 years, and then actually migrated back down to South Carolina, where my career in lending actually took off, for lack of a better diction, around that time. And ever since then, I've been in uh, South and North Carolina since about 2008. So most of my life, I actually spent about an equal amount of time between New York and the Mid-Atlantic and the Carolinas. Okay. Thank you for sharing your background. Um, so you mentioned that you were a lender. Can you talk more about your, your current role, how you kind of came up through the ranks uh, compared to where you are today? Sure, sure. So my current role is Director of Strategic Growth and Production for the company called Thrive Mortgage. Um, what that means is that I'm, I play an intricate part in bringing and attracting new talent over to the company. Also, over my region area in the southeast i'm actually instrumental in being a leader on the production side so just making sure that the loans that we manufacture from start to finish i have to make sure that we get it done on time and efficient and the customers 100 percent satisfied so when you ask about my career path to here it's it's been a long road i've been in the industry for approximately 19 years and i started out I would say in 2003, and I was a mortgage broker. So I was partnering the company at that time, and pretty much I didn't know what it was. A, it was a place, a time when everyone was just trying to open up a mortgage company and, and just pretty much learn your way. And the industry itself wasn't regulated at that time. So all you needed was an LLC and a business license, and it was the wild, wild west. Unfortunately, after four years, and not because of our doing, you know, my company itself, but the industry as a whole in 2008 took a big fall. And around that time, there was an act called the SAFE Act that came into play where all mortgage brokers had to be licensed as well. So with that being said, I had to make a choice. Do I stay in the broker side or do I migrate onto the bank side? Now, I didn't know anything about the banking side of it because as a mortgage broker, for lack of an addiction, I would say I was a middleman, right? I was able to find the clients, I bring them in, I would contact my wholesale lender in the bank, I would ask them, you know, what's the guideline, what's the rates? And my goal was just to make sure everything they told me I had to fulfill with the client until we closed the loan. So when I migrated into the bank, it was different because I'm the person at the bank who have to understand fully all of the guidelines and the manufacturing process of this loan process, right? So when I got into the bank, it was it was different. It was really a tough time in the market and most people exited. So many brokers who I knew stopped doing business. I was determined to really understand what this banking industry is about. And for a lot of people, it was the worst time in their career. And for me, it actually turned out to be the best time in my career because I actually learned the concept of a relationship versus a transaction. As a broker, most of my deals were transactional, right? I'm the client, we got the deal done, I made money, and that really motivated me at the time. 
But when you're a banker or a mortgage advisor or someone who, who's trusted in this field, you actually see the clients every day. Or you go to a restaurant and the, and the owner of the restaurant, he's a client of yours as well. Or you go to the mall and you see the clients and their, and their children and the grandchildren, and you realize that you're part of a bigger engine in this industry. And that for me was, was eye-opening, right? So after making that change in the D.C. Maryland area, I actually moved down to South Carolina where I took on another role of a community mortgage consultant. It was different than in the Mid-Atlantic because in D.C. I had an average sales price of maybe $350,000, $400,000, meaning that I was still making a lot of money doing the loans I were doing because property values were higher. And it was very seamless because there were a lot of people in the D.C. metro area. So when I moved to South Carolina, it was different because I started working with home values that were half of what I was used to, right? So $150,000. I worked on property types that I never really worked on. For example, a manufactured home. Never had to do that in Mid-Atlantic because they were not, right? And and also work closely with community trade associations who help with down payment assistance. You know, once again, in, in DC, Maryland, Virginia, there weren't many of them because it was a very affluent area. So that change actually was a whole nother eye-opener for me because I realized that minorities did not have access to information. They did not have financial literacy needed to understand how to gain wealth, to understand equity, to understand the importance of credit and homeownership. So that was something that, you know, once again, it was a huge pivot for me, but it was a big stepping board in my career because I mastered it during that time. So after about a year of doing that, I actually be, be, got into management in 2010 at Wells Fargo at the time because I was the sole person during that era who was really focused on the LMI community, which is the low to moderate income community. And I made things happen that no one can make happen. So, you know, after becoming a manager at Wells Fargo in 2010, I climbed the ranks from 2000. I was a branch, producing branch manager 2010. 2012, I was a non-producing branch manager. Uh, 2012 to 13, I was a renovation branch manager, which is another type of lending that um, pretty much a client could purchase a home and they could see any repairs that they want to make to this home and they could include that into their loan amount and purchase this home. And ideally speaking, in my opinion, that too is somewhat of an affordable loan because once again, many people in my communities don't have enough funds hanging around to come and purchase a home and just put 20000 into this home and make it theirs. So still, I still follow this plight of making sure I do have a focus on, this, on these communities that are underserved so I can help them get from here to here, so to speak. Uh, after that, I became a national renovation manager. And then my role at Wells Fargo came to an end. So the renovation department was no longer going to be uh, satisfying homeowners. So I had to make a choice at that time. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. It was a point in my career where I was kind of trying to figure out, so where do I go from here? I went to a correspondent company, which is a lender. And at that time, I worked with them for several months. And it worked out. But then I just realized, eh, you know, I wasn't sure if this is the side I wanted to be on. And I ended up taking a chance and going into wholesale lending. So let me back up a little bit. So there's four channels of origination. There's retail. Like if you walk into a door to Wells Fargo, there's correspondent, right? A smaller, you know, bank or lender who actually gets the clients into the door and they actually take the guidelines and they're processing the underwritings from another lender, right? And they can either close with the other lender or close in their name. Then you have wholesale, which I just spoke about, but I went into wholesale for several years. And wholesale pretty much works with brokers and ironically it came full circle for me because when i first came into the business i was a broker working with a wholesale lender and and the fourth one is direct to consumer pretty much it's a call center environment where you reach out to all of your clients who you service and you just stay in constant contact with them to see if it's a good time to refinance their property from a year, two or three ago, or there's also another side of retention called purchase retention, where if they list their property on the MLS, we have access to seeing that the property is listed, then we could call them again and save them on fees on purchasing their next property. 
So I went into wholesale and while I was at wholesale, I got a call from a friend of mine and he mentioned something about a certification in lending called a certified mortgage banker. It was on the radar for me several years ago, but when I heard about that, the certification, it was it was daunting when you hear about it, right? It's a three-stage process. You have to have enough points to get into this uh, into the certification. You have to go through a six-week course. You have to take a six-hour exam. You have to find a sponsor who's going to be willing to sponsor you. And then you have to do an oral examination in front of four of the CMEs who have their certification already. So everyone is just like, it's the hardest thing in the world. But when he called me, I was at a place where I already worked in retail correspondent and in, in wholesale. And I thought about it. I said, you know what? I've been in the industry for a long time. And there's no doubt in my mind that I want to take my career to the next level. So I actually applied for the certification. Lo and behold, I was accepted the first go round. I went through the six-week program. And I passed the written test and the oral test in the first time. So the program is literally a program that lasts, it could be up to three years. I was able to complete it in 11 months. So this was a huge accomplishment in my career because there aren't many CMBs, period, since the inception of 1974. There's probably no more than 1,500 in the program in over two decades. But to be a minority and to be part of this program, it says something because there are not many representations of minorities in the program itself or certified within the program itself. That says a lot. Um, so congratulations on a, it's called a CMB, correct? correct? And can you repeat what that stands for? Sure. A certified mortgage maker. Certified mortgage maker. That's awesome. So let me ask you this, man, you, you said a lot um, in terms of breaking down, you know, your career path and, and the knowledge you've been able to acquire along the way. I got to go back, though. I got to go back. First of all, I'm looking at you on video and you're talking about you've been in mortgage and lending for 19 years, but you look like you're 15 years old. You know what I'm saying? So is it is it fair to say you you like the Dougie Hauser of, of the mortgage industry? <laughs> you know, I branded myself. I'm the mortgage champ. The mortgage champ. I'm the mortgage champ. And that's okay. the brand that I hold near and dear to my heart because, you know, where I come from, it's been a long haul from people who I've, who who never thought about home ownership, could never achieve ownership, or actually had someone to be a voice for them or an advocate for them to do so. So when I think about a champion, I think about a champion who's for the people, a champion who who leads, who motivates and inspires, and who, who holds someone accountable for their action but still goes forward to help them win. So yes, I would say that I'm still not a I'm not as young as I probably look, but I do feel young at heart because every day I can tell you something, man. I still get butterflies in my stomach when someone on my team or another person I know or even a friend or somebody achieves home ownership. I feel the same way I felt over 18 years ago. That's so, when you know you're in the game, right? If you're not in the game, you're not getting butterflies in your stomach. Yeah, that's dope. So in terms of what you do, you said you work for a company now called Thrive Mortgage, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the mortgage industry, based on your experience and your knowledge, how important is it for you to have a diverse team? Words can express the importance of that. It's for so many reasons. I think when I think of people, right, I think of the way your team has to mirror the demographics that you serve, right? When I first got into the, to the bank, when I was a broker, I migrated into the bank at the time. Um, it, was a, it was a major bank in the D.C. metro area. And during that time, the D.C. metro was called Chocolate City. It was predominantly minority in the whole entire area. On the lending team, when I, when I went to my first meeting, it was about 20 loan officers. About 20 loan officers. And I was the newest member. I was the only minority on the team. And for me, that was eye-opening. Because once again, I'm in a city named Chocolate City. And I knew several people who were in lending. But when I actually saw the representation of us, it was it was daunting to say the least. Because once again, you know, how do how if you want to mirror and help the people within your community, but if you don't understand the community, you don't look like the community, the community does not trust you because once again they can't relate to you then how are we really helping those communities 
to answer your question, a diverse team is paramount to success because you're able to deploy in a way where you know they're able to cast out a wide net and you can almost believe that you can bring everything back in because you have people who understand the community that they serve. I think that's important. Oh, that's awesome. I think, you know, the way the world is today as a whole, every industry, every organization, things are changing, you know, and, and we all have to keep up and change. And one of those major changes is our workforce demands and, and they're thirsty and they're hungry for us to be diverse. You know what I'm saying? They they are hungry for us to make sure that they all feel valued. Not that they have not that they just have a voice. But their voice is allowed to be heard and not muffled. Um, I got to ask you, though, what you intrigued me. Basically, prior to 2008, from what you're saying, the mortgage industry was the Wild Wild West. That's what it felt like. Anyone was into the game. So how, how did it benefit the people working in, in that industry? as well as or or benefit or hurt the people in the community? I think it hurt the people in the community. It was several things that were happening. So there were there were lenders, there was predatory lending, meaning that there were lenders who were who were doing loans on the false pretense. They were it was redlining where, you know, they would stir they was they would steer people into other areas and not put them in an area where they wanted to purchase. You had had appraisals that were, you know, manufactured and values were 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 um, inflated, right? To satisfy, you know, whoever in that deal needed for it to be satisfied to meet a need. You know, money was a, a focal point during that time, but there was a lot of money to be made. And I think the the people, the communities suffered because of that, because of misinformation, because of, of care, right, from an advisor to a client. And I think ultimately because of education, right? Because, you know, you've had situations where I could tell a client or clients were told, hey, here's this loan, you're only going to pay about 800 a month, right? Talk about a client who's on a fixed income and thought this was going to be the mortgage payment. And come to find out, that was the interest-only mortgage payment for the first three years. Year four, that payment is $1,800. So there were a lot of situations like that that happened, hence why there were so many foreclosures that came about during that time and thereafter, right? So it was a it was a tough time, but I will say that that the industry, of course, corrected as quickly as, as it could. They were able to come back and put some guidelines in place in order to make sure this that does not happen again. Okay. So... Historically speaking, you know, from your perspective and what you know about the industry, what communities have benefited from the mortgage industry and what communities have been at a disadvantage and why? I think the communities at disadvantage would be your lower to moderate income communities. And I think the main reason of the disadvantage is because of access. You know, they didn't have access to literacy programs. They don't have access or had limited access to close and close programs or down payment assistance programs. Um, they didn't have access to understanding the importance of credit, right? Because from a generation of not understanding the importance of credit, right? And then you get to a situation where you're an adult and you don't realize that the things you've done in the previously four, previous four or five years really hurt your buying power, purchase power, then you at that point try to make do and make it happen, which could take another four years, right? So it seems like we were always in those communities. They were always behind the eight ball of it. And more importantly, I think just from the standpoint of uh, of confidence, you know, when I moved to South Carolina and I became a branch manager in Georgetown, South Carolina, small town, once again, population, I don't even know the number of population, but I know it's a very small plain town. But I would see people in the community, especially from the outskirts of the area, they'll come into the bank. And I'll see older, you know, black couples, you know, minority couples. And when I first moved there, you know, they would come up to me and shake my hand. And some would hug me. And I didn't understand the importance of it. And then until maybe a few weeks later, they'll tell me, hey, I've never seen someone who looked like us who's in the bank and who's a manager. Or I feel comfortable coming to the bank and talking to you. 
because, you know, because I think that you'll understand what I'm talking about. Or I came to the bank previously and they turned me away and just told me I didn't qualify, but didn't tell me what I need to do to qualify. So, so when you have a system that they feel is in place like that, at some point, they don't have the confidence to even go to the bank to even try to apply, to even try to qualify, because the assumption is they're not going to help me. And that, be honest with you, that's the biggest challenge of all that we just stated, is the fact that I'm not going to try because I know I'm not going to win. And that's what I saw early on. So why you do it? I've seen you, I've listened to you, and you've alluded to it here tonight. Why are you so passionate about financial literacy and, and, and teaching minorities about the mortgage industry? You know, growing up in, in Brooklyn, it was crime infested and my life expectancy was probably during that time coming out of Brooklyn in the late 80s in high school was slim to none. I wasn't supposed to make it past high school. I might have ended up supposedly in jail or dead. And that was probably the majority of my friends at that time. That's what happened to them. Home ownership, you know, I knew a couple people in my family who established it, but the majority of my friends and families there, nobody owned a home. Everybody rented. And it was something that you thought was normal. And then, you know, I moved to South Carolina and I moved to Irmo, South Carolina. And at that time, it was like moving from, from the hood to Beverly Hills 90210. And I'm dating myself by saying Beverly Hills 90210. But it was, it was a total shift. And then everybody had a house. All the kids had Mercedes Benzes and BMWs. And they were no different than me. It's just that they were in a different area, a different place. And, and they had access to different things that I didn't have access to. So my passion lies in something that's really simple. It is holding the keys, right? And I fought hard to achieve all the accomplishments that I've accomplished, right, through life. There's accomplishments from graduating from high school to graduating college. I, I worked on Capitol Hill. Never thought that I could ever work on Capitol Hill. And I'll be honest with you, after breaking down these doors and these barriers, I realized something, that if I don't share those stories, or if I don't continue to do so, then others who look to me or, or come to me for assistance, they're not going to understand what that looks or feel like. And I think that's important is that, that I stand on the shoulders of others who laid that path for me, and I'm not going to stop, right? I'm going to continue to fight, fight, and fight until I open as many doors as I can for anyone who wants to understand and get the education of, of wealth, generational wealth, equity, and what we need to do to be better stewards of our credit. That's what it's all about. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we we got to keep pushing and getting that information out to everybody. Um, back to Capitol Hill. You know, you slipped that in there on me kind of quick. Right. What'd you do on Capitol Hill? So I worked in Congress. I was a staff assistant for a congressman out of Albany, Georgia. And then I became a legislative correspondent in the Senate for about a year and a half. This was right before 9-11. So when I graduated college, I, I was a government and politics major. You know, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to become a lawyer. So Capitol Hill would have been the next progression to uh, getting some experience and, uh, you know, sit for the LSAT and get the recommendations I need to go into law school. And then ironically, you know, when you think about that and during that time, you know, I was like, you know, well, who's, who's going to pay for law school? And if I go to law school my first year, and they, you know, everybody's talking about when well, you can't work through the first year. And I'm like, well, who's going to take care of me? And, and you know, how does that, what does that look like? Right. And this is what I think people who grew up like me, lower and moderate, and I was probably in the lower state, uh, space, it's what you think about. And unfortunately, as a child and a young adult, you shouldn't have to think about stuff like that. Right. But then so I, I told myself, it wasn't going to happen for me there. And I just had to figure out a way that I was going to make it and what I was going to do. And then, you know, the power to be, you know, had favored me. And there was a couple of people and mentors along the way that tapped me on the shoulder and I listened. And here I am today. I can say that it wasn't just by myself alone. Yeah. So knowing really, because it sounds like you hadn't really scratched the surface yet, but being an African-American man, successful, you have your CMB, right? Your CMB. Being an African-American man 
in the mortgage industry and you're so successful, how does that make you feel, number one? And number two, what what fuels you to keep pushing? You know, how does it make me feel? I'm honored and I'm humbled because, once again, I don't see a lot of people who look like me in, in this space, or not enough, in my opinion. So when I say honored and humbled, because I know that it took a village to help me to get to this point, right? And the people around me to push me, the people around me to tell me, you know, you could do it, the people who rally behind me every day, and clients included, who look up, who look to me for help. And that, all of that fuels me, right? Because I represent more than just just a minority man in the industry. I represent all minorities and all people who want to be in this industry and be successful, right? So for that, I wear it not as a badge of honor, but I wear it as something that is energy for me, that motivates me. And it makes me want to continue on because I want everyone to really realize that, you know what, it's a choice to have a bad day. It's a choice uh, to get knocked down and not get up. It's a choice to quit, right? So I'm I'm humbled, right? And the thing about it, this is too, is that I'm not going to oversell it. But at the end of the day, no one can stop you from learning. No one can stop you from getting a certification. No one can stop you from writing a book. No one can stop you from doing all the non-linear things that you need to do to be successful. Yes, you may have some obstacles. Yes, you're going to have some roadblocks. But at the end of the day, there's an old saying, if you don't get a seat at the table, it's no problem trying to create your own table. And that's my mindset. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I can really speak to, you said something about the village. You know, sometimes it sounds like a cliche but if you hadn't been a part of the village, you wouldn't understand it. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, I had people pouring to me when I was a kid. Didn't think I could make it. One point, it didn't have any hope. And I remember I had an aunt and she said to me one day, she said, Kevin, you're going to be somebody one day. Just that simple. Right. And every time I saw her, she would say it. Kevin, you're going to be somebody one day. My parents would say, you know, the sky's the limit. Right. That was that was the term then. And yeah. so now at this point, we're telling our kids that there is no limit. The sky ain't even the limit. You can go above and beyond. So that village is so important because it it it, it kind of keeps you in a framework, protects us from our I, I'll get to my Gullah Gucci roots here. It protects us from my own self. You know what I mean? And along the way, you have people to point you in the right direction and, and keep you lifted up and uh, keep you encouraged. A lot of times, you know, we wait for a sign from the sky you know, to drop out to tell us it's time, right? And it's funny because, you know, I was always receptive to constructive criticism or just information. And I think about the times when people tapped me on the shoulder and said, listen, you should do X, Y, and Z. It was some reluctance there because it was some fear there, right? But I ended up doing what they asked me to do, and that opened up another door, another opportunity, another door, and more. So I say it to say is this. A lot of times, we're not successful, not only because of the environment that we're in, but also because of our own self-fears and insecurities that we are afraid to push and move forward, or afraid to fail, right? So if I leave anyone with something today is this, it's okay to fail forward. I'm okay with failing. I will fail as much as I can in order to learn what I need to learn in order to win. Failure is not failing forever. It's temporary. It's for time, place and time. And it's okay, right? As the Wright brothers, they're playing around with this airplane, they're trying to fly, they're falling, it's crashing. Here we are today, right? So failure is not something negative. Any invention that we have today, it had to be tested. And they failed several tests in order to modify whatever the product is. So keep that in mind is that 
failing is not it's not failing. Either you win or you learn. And that's my motto. I like that. Win or you learn. So along your journey, we all have challenges. And, and so my question is, have you ever felt like um, you personally were discriminated against or somehow had a door shut in your face just because of who you are? Uh, and even your name, even your name, your full name is Nasim Al-Akim, correct? Has your name or what you look like ever caused you to be discriminated against in your industry? So do I know it 100%? No. Um, do I think sometimes it's played a part? If I have to speculate, maybe. But I think what it, what is more, what stands out more than just the discrimination against myself, I think it's more of, of the trust in a group of people to understand what the job is. I think when you think about money and finances and literacy and teaching, I think that for so often, you know, you've seen like the average age of a loan officer is probably in the mid fifties, right? So ideally speaking, anyone young coming into the game, you know, you're probably gonna be looked upon as you don't have enough experience historically. Um, people who are in the industry were typically white historically. So in looking in the game, if you don't look like the normal people in this in this industry, then maybe you're not going to be as proficient as they are, right? So I think it comes from a history of not being inclusive, right? So so maybe I fell in that space. Conversely, once given the opportunity, right, to excel in this space or any space, if you feel the same way. It's up to you, not just to show up, but to show out. And that's the thing. I think you hear the cliche all the time. Well, as black people, we have to work twice as hard. I'm not doubting the cliche at all, but I would say this, as a person, you know, all the champs I know in their space, they work three times as hard to be champions. Floyd Mayweather, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, they work five times as hard. So, so with that mantra, I don't care, you know, what you look like, your ethic, your motivation is what's really going to help you propel. And at the end of the day, once again, no one can take that from you. If you win in the race, you win in the race. At that point, it doesn't really matter what color you are either, because a winner is a winner. And if someone decides that, okay, you know what, you're not someone I want to hear, even if you are a winner, guess what? You don't have to be there. Right? That's the choice that you can yeah. because it's not your terrain. And I've learned that too. I think a lot of times, you know, we fight to excel in a space where we may not be wanted for whatever the reason is. But we want to stay in the space, space and we want to fight to stay here and we feel like they're trying to push me away. But guess what? It may not be them. Maybe it's the universe. Maybe it's the creator. Maybe it's some other force that's pushing you out of there because your time is done there. Right? So that's another way of looking at it. And for me, that's how I look at my life. I don't look at it as what happened to me in a victim mentality. I look at it as a sense where, okay, this happened. What am I going to do now? And how do I course correct? Right? So I thought that was a load of answer to your question, but I would just say, I'm sure the answer is yes, but I never received it that way because I knew my worth and where I wanted to go with it. That's good. Um, that's good stuff, man. Um, you know, as you were talking, you know, I'm thinking about, younger people today, right? And the generation is different. You know, we didn't have uh, a global, uh, you know, uh, world at the time that we grew up. You know what I'm saying? Things, news didn't travel from one end to the earth to the other in five minutes. You know what I'm saying? We had to wait on it. We had to grind. And so my message to young people today would be, be ready, right? Some of those people you mentioned, like Kobe and Michael, and you know what? They may be in your way. They may be ta they may have the talent, whatever, but what happens when LeBron James rolls his ankle? Lord forbid. Right? Are you ready? Next what happened when Michael Jordan retires? Are you ready? Yeah. Have you put in that work and and made yourself prime and, and ready to, to walk into that opportunity? Somebody that we know said to me one time, they said opportunity 
to be set up for opportunity comes to people with a prepared mind. You heard that before? That before. Okay. <laughs> How you feel about that? I agree. You know, I mean, if you rely on someone else to uh, tell you it's going to be okay, or someone's going to take you there, or you follow, you know, you could be okay with mediocrity, then I don't know if that's a recipe for success. I think that in today's world, to your point, we have YouTube, Google, we have all the resources available that if you want to learn and know something about something, before you even get to the interview or the profession, you can learn it inside out today. You have to be prepared. You have to outthink everyone else. You have to you have to outwork everyone that you feel, including yourself sometimes. You have to negotiate with yourself at times to push yourself to do so. And here's the analogy, yeah. right? If you want to lose weight, you know, you know, people do this all the time, you're gonna die, right? The diet lasts for six to eight weeks. As soon as you see improvement, it's a wrap. The diet is it's history, right? Because you hit a plateau. But what you're talking about is preparedness is that you don't stop. The plateau never happens. You continue to have consistent behaviors and habits that keeps you sustainable to be successful, right? And that's where the prepared mind is. Opportunity, if it comes to you, it's not because you're lucky. It's because something to that point was seen that you couldn't prepare for it. It's up to you to break through the door. So I agree with you on that. We got to be ready. You got to be ready. Because the, the tragedy in it all is when that opportunity comes and you're not ready and you get passed by. You know what I'm saying? That's that's the true tragedy. So let me ask you. You've been in the mortgage industry for a long time, right? If there was one thing that you could change to make things more equitable and, and have more of a plain, leveled playing field for everybody, what would it be? I think, I think it's a few things. So when I think about the people, I think about equity in people. I think if you want to level the playing field, I said I said it earlier that you have to mirror the demographics in the community that you work in, right? So if you're able to do so, then you also have people on that staff that are able to go into the communities, right? And they can meet the, the clients where they are, as opposed to clients having a lack of confidence coming to you to get the information, right? Because once again, you're passionate about your community. And you're going to go back and pay it forward to there. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is, once again, the access. More programs, local, state, and federal, right? That has to do with homeownership, financial literacy. That has to do with down payment assistance. It has to do with credit, the importance thereof. And really start this, not just today in older communities, but start this in high school. Have this, these conversations in college, Right. Because that's the future, and that's where our legacy lies, and that's who needs to know this more than anybody else. So, and I think finally, just at a national level, like you know, having having national policies in place that people are protected, and and they have the resources in place to be successful. And I think for a long time, those resources were not in place, and if they were. They weren't in a place where where many knew how to get to them. And my example is this, to work on Capitol Hill, right? If you want to work on Capitol Hill, you could never look on Indeed. You wouldn't find anything in CareerBuilder or Monster.com for a job on Capitol Hill. It comes out in two papers. It's called The House or The Roll Call, historically. And that's where the jobs were actually put in those papers if you want to work there. The only people who had access to those papers were people who worked on the Hill. So the only way you would know what jobs opening up is if you worked there and if somebody you knew who worked there told you about the job. So that's how I feel about my industry. It was closed up for a long time and you just, if you didn't know who you needed to know to get the information, then you were just sitting on an island by yourself trying to figure out every day and just going on this hamster wheel. And here we are. I like what you said about outreach. You know what I'm saying? Outreach. And I think a lot of different uh, industries and organizations really uh, need to switch it up and step it up in that area, especially after dealing with the pandemic, you know what I'm saying? And just realizing, recognizing different technologies 
and things like that. And as you were talking, I was thinking about comparing, as you were talking, I was thinking about comparing the banking industry to the church, okay. right? <laughs> the people that actually go to church every Sunday, paying their tithes, showing up, taking communion, are they really the people that really need the church the most? Right. Right. So in parallel, the people that come to the bank, depositing money, withdraw here. Hey, I want you to switch this from this account to this account. Right. Are they really the people? You see what I'm saying? So I just I just think outreach is important, man. There's so many. And it goes back to confidence. Like you said, there's so many people out there saying, I'm not going, I'm not going to that bank. Why am I going to that bank for? Because as soon as I walk in the door, they're going to decide whether or not I'm getting a loan or not. And and I would like to hope that things are a lot better. But I believe that historically and over time, that's been a situation. In my opinion, I have to agree too. To be, to be transparent with you, I'm not gonna hold any punches back the way I feel about the situation. I just feel that, um, and I feel that we've come a long way. You know, I think that, you know, when, when I think of DE and I, diversity, equity, inclusion, I think the diversity. You know, there's a push on diversity and equity um, in people in teams. Right, and I'm seeing a lot of programs like ERG programs are coming up, and I'm seeing a lot more for that. But the I, the I, is where we have so much more opportunity. The inclusion part, right? You can have all the diversity you want. You can put all the programs you want to stand by, which you believe that you know this person or this group of people need. But if you're not included or have a voice, then what's the point? Because the whole point of this whole thing we're talking about is to be able to be a part of this engine, right? To be able to have a voice, to be able to uh, contribute, to be able to push the agenda forward, right? But if you don't have the opportunity to do so, even though you're there, then once again, you still don't have the confidence needed to move forward. It just almost feels like somebody's playing around with you, right? So I think the inclusion part is, is the next step that I think that, you know, well, personally, you know, I definitely work towards that. You know, I have, have recognition on my teams. I do outreach. I like to do uh, things where, you know, I don't, even though I'm a leader, I don't have to lead all the time. I actually sit back and let someone else lead the conference call or lead something else because I believe that every great leader reads leaders. In order to do so, you have to include them in that that space of leadership in order to learn and have some competition in it to grow in that space, right? So, you know, there's opportunity, right? So when there's opportunity, there's hope. Um, I'm not going to leave it up to hope because hope is not a strategy. So I, every day, work towards increasing the visibility. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to talk about something. I swear, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it's been, been pretty good. As an African-American man, I just, for us, I want us to talk for a minute that, you know, as we came up, we left high school, we went to college. Did you have your parents sit you down and educate you about finances or did you have to go out in the world and learn some tough lessons? No, I did not. And ironically, my parents were both in the finance field. So my mother was in banking and my father was in the, in the, in the stock exchange. Right. And, you know, and no shade to my parents because they worked extremely hard. I think that was the that was the overarching theme during that time. They really just worked hard to get off work, to come home and take care of their family, you know, to instill education. It was almost like asking them to work twice as hard because just to get through their day, taking the subway to New York, going to work, hustling and bustle, coming back, taking care of the kids. It's nine o'clock at night, they're exhausted, right? There wasn't time to educate on finances. I didn't get that conversation. All I think I knew was maybe try to pay your bills on time if you can. And you know, you hear the old cliches, you gotta ride Peter to pay Paul. And you know, you know, if the lights were out for any given time, it's gonna come back on, things happen, you know. And it was just it was a survival. It had nothing to do with how to get ahead. So once again, it was a reoccurring hamster wheel that several of my family lived in. And 
my first credit card, I remember I got in college, you know, first week in college, you have all these kiosks where you sign up for the free gift and they you know, sign you for a credit card and I got the credit card and of course I burned it up to like $300. I stayed in my limit, Pizza Hut, the Kmart, you know, things that a 20-year-old 20, a 20 would do and couldn't pay it. So, I, so it was a charge off, right? I didn't have the money to pay it. I, I was scared to call home and say, hey, should I pay this card? And, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out for me that way. So then I ended up trying to get a new car or purchase a car a couple of years later. And they were just like, you have bad credit. Like, I don't have anything in my credit. So when you have a charge off, right? And I'm just like, wow. You know what I mean? It, it really hit me because I didn't understand it. But from, that, but from that point on, to your point, I'm already behind the eight ball. Right. I'm 22, 23, trying to figure out, okay, what's a charge off? How do I pay this off? I don't have enough credit. How do I get credit? Because I have a bad credit score. What do I do? Where's the information? I don't know. Whereas other families and cultures at my age, they were already authorized users on their parents' cards. They already had money from their parents for down payments for their cars. They, they already had had resources that I did not have access to. Hence why access to me is the biggest word I'm saying is how do we get this access or promote these opportunities to everyone? So no, brother, I was behind the eight ball by far and I had to, had to learn my burden. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell you something though. I would not probably change that in my case because because of that, I'm able to have these conversations and, and speak with passion about it because I've lived it, not because I've heard about it or I, or I saw somebody. No, I lived it. And I can tell you personally what it feels like and why we, I, you should be doing things this way moving forward. It's coming from a credible source of someone who failed. Yeah, that's why I believe the, the work you do is so important. Um, generational poverty is a nasty disease. It is a nasty disease. And just like you, you know, my parents worked around the clock. Nobody was sitting me and my older brother down and talking to us about budgets. And, and you know, it was Rob Peter to pay Paul. Yep. You know, I remember uh, I was in law enforcement and my kids were getting older and my wife said, hey, we need to take these kids to Disney. And I felt guilty. I felt guilty. I did. My first reaction was, I can't do that. She said, what do you mean? I said, I can't take off from work. You go ahead and take the kids and, and you know, I'll hold. She was like, oh, no, 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 no. You, you know, but people do what they know. You know what I'm saying? That's all I knew. That's all I saw my parents do. Work, work, work. There wasn't, hey, we're going bowling Friday. You know what I'm saying? Hey, we're going to the, they were busy working. And and again, like you said, no shade because they held it together. But we have an opportunity to really make sure that young people uh, really get educated about, you know, their finances because it's important. It is. You know, I mean, and the work is going to it's never going to stop. You know what I mean? And and not just that, but we have to walk the walk and we have to create opportunities for them as well to see the opportunities. Right. On the other side of it. They have to be ready for it and they have to want it to. Because I think right now the environment I'm seeing of some of the younger generation, it's a lot of um, entitlement, right? You know, the work ethic that our parents had that we we have a little bit, but our, you know, the kids of today don't necessarily have that same ethic, right? And not because of their fault. Technology is way better than it was than when it was with us. We had to ride our bikes in to the sunlight, go down, the streetlights come on where the kids are playing PlayStation and, and Nintendo. It's a different world, and I, and I get that. But we have to instill that type of ethic and fire into them because, once again, you have to be prepared. You have to be ready. And finances, you know, equity is one of the biggest vehicles that you can have that creates wealth for you. And they have to understand what that is, right? And every time yeah. I do a first-time home buyer program, every time I talk to someone who comes to me, hey, I think about buying a house. I take the time and blackout time to have a conversation with them. I look at their credit report. I go over with a fine tooth comb. I tell them exactly what they need to do. Here's, the, here's, where, here's where we meet. If they do it, 
on there until the wheels fall off. If they don't do it, I still get with them. Hey, listen, how's this going? So what's going on here? Right? And I do my best to hang in there with them. But a lot of times there's some who fall off. They don't want to do it for whatever reason. Right? So once again, at my company right now, we have a we have a incubator program that for those people that you know I've seen in the past that fell off, we do have a back office where we hold their hands continuously, right? We stay in contact with them, you know, by weekly to make sure that no man's up. Whereas a lot of other companies don't do that as well. You know, we can repair credit, we can do this, we can do this, but after you fix it and repair it and do this, do you really understand what happened and why you have to stay? And that's where I'm at now today, why I'm thankful for, you know, my family here who I work with, but more importantly, just thankful for having an opportunity myself to be able to deploy that information to others around me and to people who I lead. And that's awesome. Uh, man, I swear, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, man. You've been a blessing uh, to safe conversations. Uh, would you come back? All day long. I mean, that's what's course. up. So listen, you know, thank you, Nassim Al-Akim, for just coming through and talking about the mortgage industry. I look forward to you coming back. Uh, I really appreciate you joining me on Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits, where we talk about stuff. Uh, what impacts you, what impacts me, uh, culture, diversity, equity, inclusion, our differences in general. And uh, we always remind people that just because it's safe doesn't mean it's soft. We really talk about serious issues that impact us all. All right. So can you tell me if people want to find the people's champ, if people want to find the people's champ from Thrive Mortgage, Mr. Nassim Al-Akim, how can they find you? If they want to see me, they can find me on LinkedIn, Nassim Al-Hakim. They want to email me, Nassim.Al-Hakim at ThriveMortgage.com. Or they can Google me, and I'm definitely there. Also, I'm a co-author of a book, Never Have a Bad Day. So they can check me out online to see that as well. At the end of the day, I'm here, not going anywhere. I'm going to be a lifer in this journey of educating people who need to be educated. So come find me, and I'll be waiting for you. That's what's up. Thanks again. And thank everybody for listening to another episode of Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits. We'll see you next time. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Waits. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find Kevin Waits on Facebook at Kevin Waits and join the Safe Conversations group. Follow the Mino Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mino Line Media. Get the Mino Line Media app in the App Store or Google Play. The Safe Conversations with Kevin Waits podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.